Hi there, I'm Travis, and this is the Why Is That Podcast. Welcome back to the Why Is That Podcast. I'm very excited for this week's episode. If you remember all the way back to the introductory episode for this show, then you know that the inspiration for the podcast creation was that I often found myself wondering why is that when I encounter a phrase or situation. Sometimes it works the other way around, and I discover something in my historical research, and I wonder, is this why? This past week, I was reading about French history, and I encountered someone named Gilles de Ray. He fought alongside Joan of Arc during the Hundred Years' War, but is more famous for killing a large number of children after the war. The description of the tactic used immediately made me think of the fairy tale, Hansel and Gretel. Before you say anything, I know that Hansel and Gretel is a German fairy tale, but I thought that it was still possible. It turns out that I had missed the mark with my connection. Then I wound up down the rabbit hole of the origins of Hansel and Gretel, so I decided to turn the time spent in this rabbit hole into a new episode. Before we get started on the origin of the Hansel and Gretel fairy tale, and why it is that the Hansel and Gretel fairy tale came to be, I want to make sure that we are all on the same page. The story of Hansel and Gretel is a fairy tale of German origin. It was one of the ones recorded and published by the Brothers Grimm in 1812. There are a couple different versions, but the most popular goes approximately like this. Hansel and Gretel are the two young children of a poor woodcutter. A great famine settles over Germany, and the wife of the woodcutter is afraid that she and the woodcutter will starve to death unless they abandon the children in the woods to fend for themselves. Little did the parents know, Hansel had overheard them, so he hatched a plan with his sister to drop petals as they were led away to mark the path home. After the siblings safely returned home, the stepmother was furious and determined to abandon the children in the woods again. This time, Hansel and Gretel used breadcrumbs as they were led to the woods. Unfortunately, birds and rats ate the breadcrumbs, which caused the sweet children to be lost in the woods. Hansel and Gretel wander through the woods, lost until they finally found a house made of gingerbread and other candy. The two children were starving, so they started to eat the house, but were then lured inside by the resident of the house. Little did they know that the resident was a cannibal witch. Once inside, Hansel was thrown into a cage, while Gretel was forced to be the witch's slave and servant. The witch begins to overfeed Hansel in an attempt to fatten him up before she ate him, but eventually decides that it has been long enough and that it's time to eat Hansel. It has been so long since her last flesh meal that she also decides to cook and eat Gretel. The witch asks Gretel to tell her when the oven is hot enough, but Gretel pretends not to understand, so the witch leans in to test the heat of the oven on her skin. Gretel seizes the opportunity presented and shoves the witch inside the oven before bolting it closed. The witch dies, Hansel and Gretel escape, but not before stealing all of the witch's money. Hansel and Gretel find their way home, where they are reunited with their loving father, who had deeply grieved their loss. The stepmother had died in their absence, so the three of them were able to live happily ever after in the comfort due to the stolen witch money. If you were to Google most famous fairy tales, the top result would be an article from The Guardian titled Sally Gardner's Top 10 Fairy Tales. And of course, Hansel and Gretel made that list. Hansel and Gretel is a popular fairy tale to read and was one of the two inspirations to the Disney animated short Babes in the Wood, which debuted in 1932 as part of the Silly Symphony series. Hansel's plan to leave breadcrumbs to find his way back home is also the inspiration of the term breadcrumbs 
in reference to leaving a marker to navigate through user interfaces and web pages. Needless to say, it has had a large impact on popular culture. All of that impact is only measuring the impact in the English-speaking world. In 1997, Happily published a vote in which Hansel and Gretel was voted as Germany's favorite fairy tale. It is also a favorite part of the holiday season as the opera Hansel und Gretel is an annual must-see at many large opera houses throughout the world along with smaller child-led plays. One of my personal favorite facts about Hansel and Gretel is that it was referenced in a United States Supreme Court reasoning for a decision to overturn California's ban on the sale of violent video games to minors. Here I will quote the decision written by Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia in the Brown v. Entertainment Merchants Associations in the year 2011. California's argument would fare better if there were a long-standing tradition in this country of specially restricting children's access to the depictions of violence, but there is none. Certainly the books we give children to read or read to them when they are younger contain no shortage of gore. Grimm's fairy tales, for example, are grim indeed. As her just desorts for trying to poison Snow White, the Wicked Queen is made to dance in red-hot slippers till she fell dead on the floor, a sad example of envy and jealousy. Cinderella's evil stepsisters have their eyes pecked out by doves, and Hansel and Gretel, children, kill their captor by baking her in an oven. The whole decision is actually quite great, but I won't read any further as this is really the only part that concerns our episode. Any fairy tale that has reached a point to be included in a Supreme Court decision seems like it is a pretty big deal. In order to understand some of the cultural impact, I think it is important to explore the individuals who collected the story and the political climate when it was published. Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm grew up to be German academics and cultural researchers who were best known for their collection and publication of oral folktales. Their work was a favorite of Walt Disney, as the collected tales include Cinderella, the Frog Prince, Rapunzel, Sleeping Beauty, and Snow White, among many, many others. The two brothers were the eldest in a family of five boys and one girl. They were born just over a year apart in January of 1785 and February of 1786. They were born in a small town called Hanau, which was located in the Holy Roman Empire's electorate of Hesse. To provide you with historical context, this is just prior to the revolution in France, so it was very much in the days in which the Holy Roman Empire was on the wane. The brother's father was named Philip. He was a lawyer and town clerk, but died when the boys were still relatively young in 1796. Philip's death brought hardships upon the family that was magnified two years later when their grandfather also passed. However, with the help of their aunt, the two elder Grimms were able to attend high school in Cassel. The brothers found themselves largely ignored by their teachers, who instead focused their attention on the wealthier school children. Nonetheless, the brothers buckled down, studied hard, and were rewarded by each graduating top of their respective class. This atmosphere of financial isolation, along with determined classwork, brought the two boys close together where they formed a friendship and partnership that would last their entire lives. Their grades allowed them admission into the University of Marburg, where they studied law with the intention of entering the civil service. However, it was not knowledge of the law that would make the largest impact on their lives while they were at university. As we previously discussed in episode 9, flags, our modern idea of nationalism got its start in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. In the area of the Holy Roman Empire where the Grimms lived, this movement was manifested in German nationalism, and it all started with Napoleon. This was not because the Germans liked Napoleon, quite the opposite in fact. 
As Napoleon conquered the Holy Roman Empire, the German populace started to hate the French. Human nature often seems to make it easier to define ourselves by the traits that separate us from the other, and as the Holy Roman Empire fell apart, those who left inside looked to their shared German heritage as their defining characteristic. This feeling would be embraced in the various German unification movements that would eventually result in the formation of the German Empire in 1871. It was at the University of Marburg where the brothers were really exposed to this German pride and nationalism for the first time. The brothers were instilled with a sense of Germanness that piqued their interest in history and philology, philology being the study of language. The brothers combined these interests with a specialization in medieval German literature. Episode 4 of the History of English podcast provides some great material about Grimm's Law and the impact that the brothers had on language study, but I'm going to stick to the folktales and literature aspect. The atmosphere of burgeoning German nationalism is when the Grimm started their career. They graduated from the University of Marburg in 1806, which was the same year as Emperor Francis II was forced to abdicate the throne by Napoleon. This dissolved the empire. The brothers' post-school professions get a little complicated and do not really add to our story, so we're just going to not discuss them at this time. As the brothers performed their literary research, they also collected folk songs and folk tales. Initially, the collection was to assist two of their friends and to use in critical essays about the difference between folk literature and other writing. One of their friends encouraged them to publish their collected tales, and they first did so in the year 1812 under the title Kinder und Hausmarchen. This approximately translates to Children's and Household Tales. The title has been read to mean that the stories are appropriate for both adults and children. This first edition contained Hansel and Gretel, amongst a total of approximately 200 stories. In contrast to the romantic publications of the 18th and 19th century, the Grimm's aimed at conveying the soul, imagination, and beliefs of people through the centuries, along with a genuine reproduction of the storyteller's words and ways. This was a contrast to the French. The majority of the tales they published had previously only been recorded in the oral tradition and had never been printed before. The Grimm Fairy Tale Collection is today considered the first scientifically collected folktales, and the methods of collection is still the model for collection of folktales used today. The notes the Grimm's took have helped future linguists and literature researchers gain additional insight. Although the cherry on top is that the collection was so good due to Wilhelm's meticulous work making the tales readable that they immediately enjoyed a wide distribution inside Germany and eventually throughout the world. The success of the collection was assisted by the political nature of the times that we already discussed. The people with Germanic heritage were looking to define themselves as different from the French, which largely led to a rejection of the romantic notions that were espoused during the French Revolution. This created a public that was excited to read fairy tales that showed the richness of the German culture throughout history. The Grimm's have typically been classified as subscribing more to the realist philosophy, and this also helped their collection separate itself from the Romantics. The Grimm brothers were just out of university when they started their collection of fairy tale stories. In my research for today's episode, I read The Wild Girl by Kate Forsyth. I'm going to quote it here. Most people imagine the brothers as elderly men in medieval costume, traveling around the countryside asking for tales from old women bent over their spinning wheels, or wizened shepherds tending their flocks. The truth is that they were young men, in their 20s, living at the same time as Jane Austen and Lord Byron. 
I felt that excerpt painted a nice picture for what the collection actually looked like. One of the Grimm's main sources for the stories was a relatively young girl named Dorchin Wilde. She met the brothers when she was 12 in the year 1805. She had become best friends with the Grimm's younger sister as they lived in the same town, perhaps as next-door neighbors. As I have mentioned, the Grimm's were rather poor, so they did not have as much opportunity to travel to find the stories as the popular idea of their research might suggest. Instead, many of their tales were found by asking their friends and associates to tell them any stories they had heard. Miss Wilde contributed as many as a quarter of the 200 tales that eventually were published in 1812. One of the stories told by Wilde was Hansel and Gretel. Kind of a funny coincidence since Dorchin Wilde would be famous for her tellings of fairy tales and Wilhelm Grimm is famous for the collection of fairy tales. These two fell in love but were then forbidden to see each other by Wilde's father. This made their real lives a forbidden love story. Eventually the two would marry in 1825 but not before a romance full of drama, heartbreak, and triumph that you would be forgiven for thinking belonged inside of one of Grimm's tales rather than in his life. So this gives us the story of the brothers Grimm, the political landscape, and how they learned of the tale of Hansel and Gretel. Part of the reason that Hansel and Gretel would grow to be so famous was Humperdinck's children's opera we already discussed, but its location inside the first edition of the fairy tales has seen it translated to just about every language in the world. Hansel and Gretel is classified as a Class 327 fairy tale in the Arne Thompson classification system. The classification system groups together similar fairy tales that allow for easier organization and analyzation of folklore. The Class 327 is known as the Child Defeats Ogre or the Children and the Ogre class. As Hansel and Gretel actually defeat a witch, they are further categorized into the 327A variant. The 327A variant is titled The Children with the Witch. These tales were popular throughout Europe and particularly in the Baltic countries. It is important to note that in the archetype, the contact with the ogre or witch is involuntary. Stories of youthful heroes seeking out ogres are a different category altogether. An example of a similar story from a different part of the world is the tale of Hoppo My Thumb, which was a fairy tale published by Charles Perrault in France in the year 1697. The tale is so similar that it starts out with two brothers who are to be abandoned in the woods, but find their way home first with white pebbles, and then fail to find their way back the next day when birds eat their breadcrumb trail. The difference is that the brothers wander upon an ogre's home rather than a witch's, but both end with a daring escape and the children finding riches. Hop over my thumb should not be confused with Tom Thumb, as while their names are similar, their stories are not. Both Hop over my thumb and Hansel and Gretel follow in the noble tradition of following a trail out of danger that is often dated all the way back to Theseus and the Minotaur. The thread as the path home also appears in the story of Finette Sendron by Madame Alnoy, which was a French fairy tale published originally in 1698 and then translated to English and published as Finetta the Cinder Girl in 1721. In this story, Finetta's parents were determined to abandon her and her two sisters deep within the woods, but Finetta's fairy godmother gave her a magic thread that could attach to the door so that she, as it unwound, she would be able to find her way home. The fairy godmother then suggests ashes for the second time that they were left in the woods. In this tale, it was three times a charm for the parents, as the little girl left peas that were eaten by pigeons for the, her trail the third time. 
If I have learned anything from these fairy tales, it has to be that bits of food make for a terrible trail marker in the woods. Panetta and her sisters were instead lured to a giant's house that was made of gold and jewels. She escapes by pushing the giant into an oven. As a quick aside, the thread that appears in both Fenetta and Theseus' story is a ball of thread. In Old English and Middle English, it was not called a ball of thread, but rather a clue of thread. C-L-E-W. The use of the thread as a means to find one's way back is where we get our modern word clue, meaning a piece of evidence used for detection of a crime or solving of a mystery. One of these stories in Pentamarone, which was a fairy tale collection published in 1636 by the Italian poet Giambattista Basil, also provides a story of a father abandoning his children in the woods, but it was the father's trail of ash that was able to guide the children home the first time. It has been suggested that the Pentamarone story may be the same one that was eventually adapted by the Grimm's, but it was also possible that the Grimm's did not know about the Pentamarone until the Grimm's third edition. An even older tale in Martin Montano's Schwanbucher in 1557-66 to tells the story where it was just a younger child who gets abandoned in a plot by the older sibling and stepmother. In this case, it was first a trail of sawdust, then chaff, but the third time the hemp seed was eaten by birds. These multiple examples of stories with remarkably similar tales highlight the connections of culture and storytelling between the various European peoples. However, beyond the example of Theseus, which really is not that similar, all of these stories seem to first appear in what would be considered the late medieval period or the early modern period. This would hint at some sort of origin of this type of story within the past 1,000 years. In a way, it is as similar to how most ancient civilizations have a story about a flood, though we are not going to get into that tangent today. In the modern day, it might sound scandalous or appalling that a parent might abandon their children in a forest so that the parent would survive and not starve. In today's world, food is a more abundant, and due to our current technology and global trade, we are more insulated from a potential famine. However, there are still those who are starving, but in our minds we generally think of a parent as starving themselves first, with the only hope that keeps them going, that they will someday be able to feed their children. In reality, though, we live in a very privileged society compared to the one of centuries past. In some ways, the scandalous piece of our fairy tales is really more that the parents were just going to abandon the children without even attempting to sell them into slavery first. St. Basil the Great recounted a story that occurred during the famine in the year 368 during the Roman Empire in which a father who headed a starving family had to decide which of his sons would fetch the best price if he were to sell them at market. The father eventually had to sell his favorite son in order to save the rest of the family. It is a very sad state of affairs, but one that has been a reality for as long as humans have gathered together in communities. Fairy tale experts, though, do not date Class 327 tales like Hansel and Gretel all the way back to St. Basil's Famine. Instead, the type of story in which children are abandoned before they defeat a witch or ogre is generally dated as originated during the Great Famine of 1315 to 1321, although opponents of that theory point out events like St. Basil's Famine that show hunger and poverty were not a new thing for the peasant classes. 
The Great Famine, however, particularly stands out as great as there was a period of growth and prosperity throughout Europe from the 11th to 13th century that came to an abrupt halt when bad weather in the spring of 1315 resulted in crop failures in 1316 and 1317. Europe does not show signs of recovery from this famine until the year 1322. This half-decade period showed a marked increase in crime, disease, mass death, cannibalism, and infanticide, to the point that it is often categorized as each of those rising to extreme levels. Evidence shows that millions of deaths occurred during this period. This Great Famine is generally categorized as the first great crisis of the larger Crisis of the Late Middle Ages. I'm going to quote Professor Lynn Harry Nelson from the University of Kansas to describe the period. By the spring of 1317, all classes of society were suffering, although, as might be expected, the lower classes suffered the most. Trapped animals were slaughtered, seed grain was eaten, infants and the younger children were abandoned, many of the elderly voluntarily starved themselves so that the younger members of the family might live to work the fields again. There were numerous reports of cannibalism, although one can never tell if such talk was not simply a matter of rumor-mongering. Within this description, we can find all the pieces that make up the fairy tale of Hansel and Gretel. Well, all of them except that the children somehow had a loaf of bread that they could tear up to make a path home rather than devouring it due to hunger pains. The geography of the Great Famine encompassed much of Europe, as far south as Italy and as far east as Russia, but primarily impacted northern Europe and the Baltic states. Particularly hard-hit were the British Isles, France, Scandinavia, Germany, western Poland, and some of the Baltic nations. These locations each represent a location I referenced earlier as having a near-identical tale to that of Hansel and Gretel. The vast scale of the Great Famine, which was then followed by the Black Death just a generation later in 1348, along with climate change that saw the end of the medieval warm period and the start of the so-called Little Ice Age, resulted in Europe losing at least half of its population. That is the type of tragedy that legends are made of, but not the good kinds. People would have wanted a hopeful tale to help tide themselves through the despair. It is thought that it was in that atmosphere that the tales like Hansel and Gretel first started to be told. As I mentioned, prior to the Grimm's, the story of Hansel and Gretel was strictly an oral folktale. That makes it a little difficult to date it with certainty, but between the number of similar stories from each area that was impacted, combined with the appearance of these tales in the written records in the hundreds of years that followed, seemed to negate a shared experience that led to the formation of such tales. From my research, I feel fairly confident that the fairy tale of Hansel and Gretel found its origination in this dark and terrible time. It likely started first as parents who had survived the dark days telling the younger generation about the horrors they had witnessed. Then, that younger generation grew up and no longer had the haunting lived experience, but still needed to find a way to pass down the knowledge to the next generation. From there, the stories were created that were set in the backdrop of the Great Famine, but instead of tragedy, the tales showed that if a child is clever and resourceful, they could come out of that terrible situation with a pocket full of money that would allow the family to live happily ever after. That concludes our episode on Hansel and Gretel. We were able to look at both how it was eventually collected by the Brothers Grimm and the likely origin of the oral tradition. However, before I end today's episode, I wanted to revisit the person who gave me the idea for it. Gilles de Ray lived in the century after the Great Famine as he was born in 1405. 
So he lived in a time period where Europe was still recovering from the horrors of the 14th century. He was a knight and lord whose greatest accomplishment were as a companion in arms of Jean d'Arc, better known to us Anglophones as Joan of Arc, the Maid of Orléans. Gilles de Rey even received the military distinction of Marshal of France for his service during the Hundred Years' War. It was what happened after the war that makes him a subject for today's episode, though. In the year 1432, Gilles started his new career as a medieval serial killer. He moved to Machacool, where he killed or ordered to be killed a large number of children after he... Well, let's just say, if I say any more, we will have to mark today's episode as explicit. As many as 40 naked bodies of children were discovered in 1437 that are reported to be his victims. Here is a description of one of his crimes from a 1971 biography by Jean Benedetti. The boy was pampered and dressed in better clothes than he had ever known. The evening began with a large meal and heavy drinking, particularly Hippocras, which acted as a stimulant. The boy was then taken to an upper room to which only Jill and his immediate circle were admitted. There he was confronted with the true nature of his situation. The shock thus produced on the boy was an initial source of pleasure for Jill. The general outline of the crimes would include luring the children to his homes, dressing them well, then the unmentional acts, before killing and throwing the bodies and clothes into a fire. This outline is what made me think of Hansel and Gretel. I should mention that there is a question of Gilles de Rey's guilt. Recently, there have been suggestions that he may have been the victim of a sinister plot or of the Inquisition with specific intent to rob the man of his lands and titles by inventing a horrible crime. That would be the same time period that saw the Knights Templar brutally disbanded, so it certainly is possible. That potential conspiracy, though, does not concern us today. I previously mentioned Charles Perrault as he was the one who published the tale of Hop O' My Thumb in 1697. Well, in that same book, Perrault provided another tale about a character named Bluebeard. The difference between the real-life Gilles de Rey and Bluebeard, though, was that Bluebeard was a wealthy, violent man who killed his wives rather than random children. Bluebeard tells the story of the most recent wife's attempt to avoid the fate of her predecessors. This folktale is where the term bluebearding, which means to kill a series of women or seduce and abandon a series of women, originated. When I read the story of Bluebeard and researched the story of Gilles de Rey, I really did not connect the two as both crimes are quite different. However, Gilles has been connected to Bluebeard since at least the days of Perrault, so who am I to argue with the connection? Okay, that was fun. Well, maybe not the end portion with Gilles de Rey. That was a little terrifying, but the rest was a nice trip with an old favorite. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode about Hansel and Gretel. Be sure to subscribe to the show using your favorite podcast app, including Acast, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, Podcast Republic, and wherever podcasts are streamed. If you would like to stay up to date with to the show, you may follow us on Facebook or Twitter at WhyIsThatPod. You may also email me at whyisthatpod at gmail.com or visit the website www.whyisthatpodcast.blogspot.com. Okay, as they say, parting from you is such sweet sorrow. I look forward to speaking with you again in two weeks. Cheers.